We're joined now by Charlie in our studio. Charlie, tell me more about what you saw in the Whitney Plantation. Well, there's a lot to take in at Whitney, but what really interested me was how the plantation has organized its space and how it's different from most other plantations. So most other plantation sites see the main house or the big house, the the house where the white family lived as the focal point to organize the rest of the space around. But Whitney does something very different in that it uses its main building as the Antioch church that's been relocated to the museum. Mm. So a visitor will first go through the welcome center and read more about the history of slavery in Louisiana. And then the tour starts in the church where folks watch a video before beginning to walk around the grounds. And here's what Ashley Rogers said about Whitney's use of space and how it compares to other plantation sites. For a very, very long time in this country, we have created a thing of plantation tourism, and plantation tourism is touring a home. Um, So visitors are confused about what a plantation is. I find this all the time, even here. People get here and they go, where's the plantation? And we're like, you're on the plantation, because they don't understand. They think a plantation is a house. Rogers actually talked to me more about how the white slave-owning family is not discussed much in the tours, actually. Uh, They're the Heidel family, and when they are mentioned in the tours, and granted it does vary slightly tour by tour, but Roger said they are mostly referenced in Whitney's history when they conduct some business transaction or some business decision that directly affected the people who were enslaved at Whitney. So they are presented in the plantation's history mostly when it affects the enslaved folks at the plantation. And did you have any sense at all about how patrons and visitors responded to the way that stuff was being presented at the Whitney? Yeah, it's interesting to look at the wall in the Welcome Center that's filled with those notes from people talking about their experience at Whitney. Right. And I'll just say, when I was there, I got caught in that thunderstorm. And while I was seeking shelter in the Welcome Center, there were still lots of people who were walking around the plantation to try to squeeze out the last bits of a tour. So there was a lot of white umbrellas, courtesy of Whitney, kind of dotting around the space, which I thought was very powerful. People really going out of their way to get as much as they could out of this experience. Mm. But of course, not every plantation has been repurposed into a museum like Whitney. As we mentioned earlier in the show, some plantations are actually used for private events. And I actually traveled to northeastern North Carolina to Warren County to visit one of these plantations that has been repurposed into a private event space. And I wanted to learn more about how this plantation is incorporating the site's history into the experience for visitors. Miss Peters? Yes. Hi, I'm Charlie. Hi, Charlie. Nice to meet you. Trish Peters is the owner of Lake of the Woods Plantation. There she hosts private events like weddings, banquets, and family reunions. Peters has also lived there since she and her husband bought the property of 110 acres back in the early 2000s. The house spoke to me. I mean, old houses have that magic. They speak to you. They embrace you. And this house embraced me. And before Peters came along, Lake of the Woods was passed down through the Davis family for generations. Plantation was found in 1829. It was a property of, think about, 4,000 acres that came onto it. So everywhere around you looked was Davis property. 
And back then, the Davis Plantation was by no means the only one in Warren County. In the mid-1800s, you'd see cotton and tobacco plantations as far as the eye could see. Before the Civil War, Warren County was one of the wealthiest counties in the state. But by the turn of the 20th century, the county's economy started to crack. And despite attempts to revitalize the region, today, Warren County remains one of the poorest in North Carolina. But Peter says recently more people have started to come into the area to restore its old homes, and that Lake of the Woods stands out as a window into the past. We have the original stables, the original carriage houses. We have uh, slave quarters still on the property. Um, And everything was just kept for the purpose of history. Um, I mean, we are in the National Register of Historical Homes. We're in North Carolina considered one of the premiers because we have so many of these dependency buildings. I think that if someone's going to take upon the responsibility and the privilege of taking on an historical home, you're goal is really to restore it. Initially, Peter says she wasn't planning to host any events. She just wanted to live at the plantation. That is, after she finished all the remodeling. When they bought the place, nobody had lived there for about a decade, and things were in rough shape. There was no heat or air conditioning, and plaster was falling off the walls. But Peters knew the old house and the surrounding property had potential. We did massive restorations. Um, Every cottage every building I didn't know what to do with, so I made accommodation. Every place I went, I said, oh, this is a beautiful little cottage. I'm, I'll just make another bathroom and a bedroom. Oh, this is lovely, bathroom and bedroom. Oh, let's build this bathroom and bedroom. You know, so we created things. Soon after she finished, people started asking Peters if she could host some weddings. So she decided to open up the property to 10 events a year. If you look across the South, you'll find many more plantations-turned-event spaces similar to Lake of the Woods. In North Carolina, for instance, there are more than 15 sites that have plantation in their title that serve as private venues. The whole walking around the property, you you feel the history here. Um, I mean, obviously, with weddings, you have your discos, your bands, and things like that. But you're still surrounded by what this property was and is, even with the kind of resort feel that we've kind of added to it. But hopefully we've done it in a tasteful manner that respects the history of the house. This is what we call the brick room. The house was in pretty bad shape, as I said. We walked through the main house, and Peters told me about the different rooms and what she's refurbished. We have one of the original brick molds from when the house was being built because everything came off the plantation. All the floors, all the wood, everything came off the plantation, including making the bricks. Then we ventured outside and roamed around the grounds. As soon as we stepped out of the main house, we came across a row of old buildings, each painted white, with a sign identifying its role on the plantation. So this is here, is the original smokehouse, um, the original work shed, original chicken coop. That's the original well from the 1800s. As we continued to walk, Peters pointed to a building off in the distance. Over across the field there Mm -hmm. is Uncle Saul's cabin, which is the last remaining um, slave quarters on the property. What was his role? He was just a worker for the Davis family, and he was uh, enslaved. Mm -hmm. And then after the um, Civil War, he was a free man that still worked for the Davises, and that was his home. 
we didn't look inside Uncle Saul's cabin because Peter says it's just used for storage. But she did show me inside a building called the Summer Kitchen, filled with original artifacts from the 1800s that guests are encouraged to explore. Then we stepped inside a little cabin called Clementine's Cottage. I didn't realize that you could actually stay in here. Oh yeah, this is accommodation. Clementine was the housekeepers of the Davises in the, in the 20s. Um, she was African-American. Well. She was African-American. Yeah. Um, and so this was her little house. If you can imagine, this had a second story on it. Right now, this is maybe Probably 15 feet 15 tall. feet tall. So there was, looking onto the front wall, there was a staircase that came up and there was kind of a sleeping loft. The bathroom was a kitchen. So that had a little gas Today, Clementine's cottage sits as a quaint getaway for guests, complete with a pristine bathroom, a comfortable queen bed, and even a small collection of DVDs. It's similar to the rest of the property's country resort aesthetic. It has a faint echo of history that's muffled by the luxury of modern amenities. Instead of the small stove Clementine used to cook meals, now a TV sits in the corner. Meanwhile, the wooden planks of Uncle Saul's cabin now hold the tools required for a plantation venue to run in this day and age. Even though these spaces look very different compared to when Clementine and Uncle Saul occupied them, Peter says it's still important to include them at Lake of the Woods. The African-American history is, you know, extremely important. I mean, they were members of this family. Um, and as I told you the story about Uncle Saul, they were very kind owners, I guess. I hate that word, but anyway. They were kind owners. That's part of Southern history. But even if the Davises were, as Peter says, kind owners, some people say it's inappropriate to host a celebration like a wedding at a place that has a history of slavery. I asked Peters about that. Here's how she sees it. Well, we have, you know, we have African-American weddings here and mostly locals from Warren County that come. So I guess... I'm a northerner, so that history doesn't really affect me, per se. So, and I don't, sounds silly, I don't see color. You know, people are people to me. So the only time I've ever had any real kind of backlash, I have to say, was I was a guest at a wedding in Connecticut, and I was accosted by these young people, African-American and white, um, saying, how can you own a plantation? And why do you call it a plantation? And I said, well, that was the name of it. That's what it was called, Lake of the Woods Plantation since 1829. I mean, what, do I just change the name? And they kind of got all up in arms about it, but I just kind of looked at them and said, well, that's the name of it. And the Davises were, yes, slave owners, as were some of the forefathers of our country. So, therefore, you know, it's part of our history. Is it a good part of our history? Absolutely terrible, horrible. But it's still part of our history. So I just kind of say it's history. Yeah, it doesn't reflect upon me or the plantation. It's a farm. As we walked back up to the main house, we passed some old farming equipment displayed along the driveway. That was all kind of left as well through the generations that we've used as farm art. 
It's one more reminder of how Lake of the Woods has tried to integrate some aspects of the house's history into the present. It's a history Peter says she feels responsible to share with others. You know, people say, well, God, how do you let people come into your home? And I'll say, well, it doesn't really bother me because the house should be lived in. You know, I think that especially a home that's as handsome and so rich in heritage and history like Lake of the Woods, that people should see it. Um, I think in my approach is that I think of myself as a custodian and not an owner. I mean, I do title myself owner, but I'm really a custodian of it. And my job is to maintain it, keep its historical integrity, and to hopefully pass it on to someone else. You know, once we started this story, uh, an article came out in the Washington Post uh, surveying people who had uh, visited plantations, and there was a lot of resentment that they were spending their vacation dollars to go see something pretty, nostalgic, pleasant, or patriotic, going to presidents' homes and stuff, and feeling as if they were hijacked in some ways, with having to talk about slavery. And so I wonder to, to what extent we think that places that are dependent upon tourism are capable of telling the story that may not be what people are looking for during their leisure time. Do we think there's an intrinsic conflict, or is this exactly when we should <laughs> tell the story? I think that there are a number of different corners of the, the old slave South that depend quite mightily on tourist dollars, right? I mean, there, there's a there's a need to keep certain places relevant, a lot of, you know, rural areas in particular that might have large, you know, plantations um, rely on people going on, for instance, ghost tours of old plantation houses. I know Ty Miles, you know, wrote a book about that or, you know, seeing, say, Native American plantations and the novelty of that. Um, and, you know, I, I think there are a lot of different ways in which, again, when done tastefully or thoughtfully, um, it can even feel like less of a hijacking, say, of somebody's vacation just because so much of the geography really puts you mm -hmm. in that space um, at those places. Right. And that's, you know, these places, all of these kinds of places, whether you're talking about Mount Vernon or, or Monticello or, or these other plantations we've been talking about in this episode, they have a real power to them as places. I mean, people put themselves as tourists of one kind or another into those spaces because of that power. Now, some people who go and, and want to touch on something pretty as part of that power, um, maybe they they might feel hijacked if there's something there that isn't pretty. But I, I, I guess if you're going to understand that space and do justice to the power of that space, you know, the, wh whatever reason brings people there, it's the placeness of it that matters. Right. And so I, I think in one way or another, the challenge is to be true to that place in a way that does the facets of it justice and in a way that makes it clear that you can't understand one part without the other. You know, I mean, it makes me think of Monticello, who is a UVA grad student. I definitely went to see Monticello many times. But what's interesting about Monticello is Jefferson constructed it 
as a plantation so that he didn't have to see enslaved labor. It's underneath his house. It's out of sight of his house. So, you know, in a sense, we still are doing sometimes some version of that today when we mm -hmm. focus on the house and we don't focus on anything else that's around it. But places like Monticello and Montpelier um, are really doing extensive and I think really creative work, and actually the Whitney Plantation as well, about how to weave those stories together so that you actually can't see one without also acknowledging the existence right. of the other. I, I remember, I think it was like just last week, I kind of you know happened upon a nickel in my pocket, right? No, nobody carries coins anymore. And just turned it over. And, you know, again, this is not the first time I've ever seen a nickel. I'm a grown man, right? <laughs> but, it, but, but I was like, well, wait, hold on. There's a plantation house on our money. Yeah. Right? Like Monticello is on the nickel, and it's not there to capture slavery or the contradictions of capitalism and, you know, human bondage, right? It's there to capture the great man that was Thomas Jefferson. And it made me think a lot about kind of national iconography and how things like the plantation house can just totally, to your point, Joanne, be used even as they're there and built upon a certain kind of extraction and bondage. They're there to actually conceal that history. Like the national iconography isn't there to talk about the gritty and, and bloody parts. It's actually there to, to be a unifying thing, including the actual image of Monticello on our currency. But it actually makes me wonder, too, about other kinds of national symbols and, and the work they do. And again, thinking about plantations like, you know, Arlington National Cemetery, right? I mean, that's, you know, obviously an, an extraordinarily important and, and certainly intentionally solemn site. But I remember, you know, many shows ago when I, when I learned you know, in preparing that that was, in fact, also Robert E. Lee's plantation, which I had not known my whole life. And so, again, I think there was a way in which national unity around a former plantation space was created without any of the backstory, no pun intended, about how that particular place came to be and what it was like to really live there. I know all of us have worked with various sites to try to live up to their potential, and I've worked with some of these plantation homes in Virginia. And I know that people have to wrestle with, well, what if this leads to a 30% decline in our visitation, mm. putting the site at risk? Is that something we should even think about? And you, you're sort of asking about how, what do we do to wrestle with slavery and yet still have visitation at these sites? You know, this is an obvious thing to say, but it's how do we put slavery in our history in a way that people will still want to see it? And that's where we are now, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's the question that can't be avoided and that we're struggling with, which is it's here, it's us, it's who we are. So how do we get that to be recognized and talked about? Right, right. I think that maybe these places are building on your point too, Joanne, about the power of place. Mm -hmm. These places may be the best way to get people thinking about slavery, which is not in the abstract, but here is a plate that someone held in perpetual bondage from. Here, here is you know, the house where they had to raise children. And here are their names. And maybe here's a picture. It may be that this is one of our best chances for people to actually think about slavery in a more compelling way. By making it human. Right. You know, a lot of these plantations, like Montpelier and Monticello, are 501c3s, nonprofits with boards that are designed to tell this story forever. Others are businesses that are tied to the particular plans of a family. Should people know which is which before they mm. visit them? Well, I mean, an argument can definitely be made that even though the act of slavery was profitable, the history of slavery ought not be, and that there are 
reasons to think about these sites as always needing to have some measure of public support so that the history can be told in ways that is grounded and conscientious and not necessarily worried about turning off your kind of average um, tourist, however they imagine that tourist to be or look or, or to be concerned. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a national treasure in this history. And I think to the extent that we have a variety of people who are interested in preserving it, that's wonderful. But I also would be, you know, silly not to acknowledge that we have an economic consideration that can sometimes make it harder for people to take the topic as seriously as it needs to be.